Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. We are in 1 John in our new series, and if you like to follow along, we're going to be reading from uh, 1 John chapter 1 and 2 today. So in the Bible that's in that pew rack in front of you, if you want to get ready for that reading time, you can find that on page 1031. It's almost to the very end of the Bible. So 1031 is where we're going to be reading from. So about a month ago, I threw an epic birthday party. My daughter was turning 12. She is a party planner. She is a celebrator of all things. And she had given me a list of what she hoped for in this party, and I did my best. And so on September 7th of 2018, I had 16 middle school girls at my house for a sleepover in tents outside. I have nominated my husband and my two sons, Josiah and Titus, for sainthood because they put up the tents in the wind as the girls were arriving. We watched a movie outside on the side of a truck. It was, it was an epic party, and, and part of this party was a pinata. My daughter had asked for a pinata. I got a pinata. I hung it up. We got all ready for it. And so here I have 16 middle school girls like vultures around a pinata waiting for the candy to come out. And it was one of those that has the strings attached, and so you pull a string, and the next person pulls a string, and you wait for the candy to come tumbling out. Well, about halfway through, somebody pulled, and the entire thing came out, and nothing came out of the pinata. So I'm like, okay, this one's a tough one. So we went and got a broom, and the next girl's just whacked on that thing. And and it was about the third girl who whacked the pinata when I realized something. I thought I had purchased a pre-filled pinata. In that moment, it all became so clear. The pinata was very light. Of course it did not have candy in it yet. The pinata, I kid you not, I had this thought with myself. The pinata had a little sticker on it that said, push here. And I thought, why would you need to push here if you're going to hit it with a stick? Well, when you lifted the little pinata fringe, the sticker said, to fill, push here. So here I am with 16 vultures, middle school girls, Waiting, and I have to say, um, there's no candy. (laughs) I have an empty pinata. As we've been diving into this series on real faith, what I think John is telling us today are the areas in our spiritual life where we have an empty pinata. We're going to read this, and he's going to say, you say this, but you do this, and that's not living in the truth. You claim this, but then you do this, and that's not living in the truth. Brian launched this series last week with his message on stop chasing joy, not because joy is a bad thing, but because joy is a byproduct of living the way that God calls us to live. And so John has said that he's writing this letter to the people that he loves who are Christ followers, but who are being deceived by some philosophies of the world in order that their joy may be complete. Last week he talked about that thing, fellowship, that when we pursue fellowship, we find joy. This week we're going to see some other things that lead us to true, to true joy. So let's read together. First John, starting in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying 
If we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness, we are not practicing the truth. Do you hear that? It's an empty piñata. God wants us to be living real faith, but if we say we have fellowship with him, but we're walking in spiritual darkness, we're not living in the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we do have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Real faith, faith that is lived out the way God calls us to, fills us up and sets us on solid ground. This passage is full of these, look at this not real faith, look at the promise of God. If we claim we have no sin, another empty piñata, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Dear friend, children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. Let's press pause for a minute. He's just gone to great lengths to explain that we do sin. All of us sin. If we say we haven't sinned, we're fooling ourselves and calling God a liar. And then he says, but I'm writing this to you so you won't sin. Which is it? Are we, always gonna, are we for sure going to sin or are we not going to sin? Is there something that we can do that means we'll never sin again? And I would say both. In Hebrews, it says that God is making perfect those who have been made holy. You and I have been made holy by the living God, and yet he is still making us perfect. We are people in process. I believe what's happening here is he's stating the truth. We are broken. We live in a broken world, in a sinful world, between the perfection of the garden and the perfection of heaven. And we sin. And yet that is not an excuse to be irresponsible and to claim the attitude of, well, the devil made me do it, so it's just what I'm going to do because, well, we just sin. No. We are Christ followers. We seek to look at him and learn from him and follow in him and live in holiness and purity. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Do you hear that? Three times in a short passage, he comes back to the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. He is our atoning sacrifice that forgives the sins of the entire world. God has made a way for us, but we need to lean into that real faith. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. One final empty pinata this morning. If someone claims I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. This passage in 1 John is a bit of a litmus test. It's a bit of a, let's take a look at our lives and see if we're living with the real faith that God intended for us, with some specific examples of places where people's self-awareness was lacking. 
They said one thing, but they lived another. And and are there places in our lives where our self-awareness is lacking? Friends, I know that the the journey of faith is not about self-awareness, but it is a piece of the journey of faith. And this is an invitation from John to say, are we lining up with what we say we live in this place of faith? Here's something that Paul said in Romans about this. Romans 12.3, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. My invitation to us this morning is to enter into this passage from a humble place that does not think of ourselves as better than we are, but we're willing to see what God would like to show us today according to the faith that he's placed in us. You know, when I was younger, I was a runner. I ran track, and there were two ways of measuring yourself when you were running track. The first was the race. You line up against other runners, you take off, and when you cross the finish line, they tell you who came in first, who came in last, and everybody in between. It's a comparative measure of how I'm doing, but it depends on who else I'm running against. The other way of measuring how you're doing in track is through your time. There's a stopwatch every race, and you know if you're getting slower or if you're getting faster. Many runners work towards a PR. They know that in any given race, they could be with somebody who's faster than them and somebody who's slower than them. But they know if they run faster, they run their personal record, they've just gone farther than they've they've gone before. And today I want to invite us to look at ourselves through the eyes of the stopwatch and not the eyes of the race. See, if we approach 1 John from the eyes of the competition of the race, it has the potential to become judgmental. You say this, but you don't obey. You do this, but you're still sinning. It becomes judgmental and, and, and condemnation. But if we look at 1 John through the lens of the stopwatch, this is a loving invitation from a loving father to say, there are places in life that are not measuring up, and there are steps that you could take to walk farther in your following of Jesus. We have a personal opportunity for transformation today. So let's look at the scripture that way. John starts, oh, I have to show you something. Good thing I didn't skip that. It's kind of the foundation for the whole message. So uh, this is the Joe, oh, yeah, the Johari window. Uh, It's a weird name, Johari. It's actually just a combination of the names of the two guys who created it, okay? It's a model you may have seen that gives us a grid for kind of unpacking these things. So up at the top on the left is a column that says what's known to self. These are the things that I know about myself. Over on the right, not known to self, the things that I don't know about myself, We start forming a grid when you look at the left and across that row, those are things that are known to others, and then the bottom row would be not known to others. So when we have this grid, we can start to um, recognize the filter and see how these areas then play out. So this top one is the open area. Those are the things that are known to you, and they're known to me, and they're out in the open. So in a very oversimplistic example about myself, in the open area is my age. I'm 46. I'm not one of those people who cares about letting you know my age. You might not have known it before, but you do now. It's out in the open. I'm 46, not a big deal. But if you drop down into the hidden area, things that I know about myself that you don't know, that might be because I haven't told you about it, or it might be because you haven't discovered it about me yet. But either way, it's something that is hidden. So for this overly simplistic example, I would confess that I actually am much more gray in the hair than you would think, and I've been coloring for a long time. Um, So that was hidden. Now it's not. I just brought it into the open area. But down below the open area, what's not known to others but is known to me is my hidden area. Make sense? 
All right, so then you move up over here to what is known to others but not known to myself, and that's my blind spots. That's the area where you can see something that I still don't understand yet. This is why doing life in community is so healthy, because others can th see things about us and help us see our blind spots. That's not always easy. <laughs> when, when somebody, either on purpose or inadvertently, reveals something that we, were current, that we were previously blind to, it can be hard. You know, a blind spot that I lived with for quite a while and was challenging when I began to realize that it was true, is that... As a tall woman, simply my stature, I'm tall, I can come across as intimidating. I was blind to that for a long time. I didn't know that people were experiencing me in a different manner than how I was experiencing them because of my stature. Now, blind spots don't necessarily mean that we're doing something wrong. My height is not wrong. And recognizing that blind spot doesn't mean that I never wear heels. <laughs> It's not that I'm supposed to change something, but my awareness of it allows me to be more sensitive and, and understand the reception that I'm getting from others. And I can enter into those relationships differently because I have a different awareness of something that used to be a blind spot. And then when you drop down into the bottom right corner, this is what I don't know and others don't know, and this is the unknown area. And if we carry on with this analogy of the physical body, um, and, and this, this, this one might be hard for some of you, and I recognize that, but the unknown area would be like a cancer that's just begun growing in you. You don't know it's there. Nobody else knows that it's there, but it is impacting you. And it, it, and it, is, it is growing, and it, it is going to become something that will become known. <laughs> but at the moment, it is in the unknown area where only God can see. So this is kind of a grid for us as we look at this scripture of what are things that we're blind to? What's in the unknown areas? Where do we think we're living out our faith and yet there is something more solid and more filling and more real that God would call us to? He begins this conversation by talking about the contrast between light and dark. He says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him, we need to be walking in the light rather than walking in spiritual darkness. But the question that I ask is, what does that look like? We can talk about spiritual light and spiritual darkness all day if we want, but when I get up tomorrow morning, what is the practical reality of making decisions and living my day and doing my relationships in the light rather than in spiritual darkness? In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus tells us a little something about this. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. How many of you know that our world is in darkness? From first thing in the morning to last thing at night, there are news outlets available to you to read about all the darkness in our world. And yet if we are children of God, we have the light that leads to life living in us, and we don't have to walk in that darkness because we can follow him. Jesus came and lived so that we would know how to live, and so we can follow him. And if you read the Gospels, there's so many examples of ways that we can follow Jesus. Here are just three that I see in conjunction with this idea of light and dark. And how do we discern what is darkness and what is light? And the first is this. Jesus understood that this world is a battle. 
Jesus understood that there are forces of evil in the spiritual realms and that there are forces of good led by his Father in the heavenly places and that what we are doing here is not in this vacuum. There is a battle. He said, your enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Paul tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. When you're in conflict with somebody, when somebody has betrayed or hurt you, when you've been wounded, our battle is not against those people. Our battle is against the powers and the principalities of this dark world who seek to undermine the love and the truth of God and deceive us all. The absolute contrast of light and dark and good and evil is a real thing. And if we do not fully understand that, we have a massive blind spot. Because we don't see the world as Jesus sees the world. And we attribute things to people or to God that don't belong there. Because we need to know that there is truth and there are lies. There is good and there is evil. There is light and there is dark. Another thing we see in Jesus is that he was committed to God's word. From a young age, the Bible tells us that at age 12, his parents lost him for three days. When they finally went back to Jerusalem to find him, he was in the temple learning from the teachers. When he began to share in the synagogue himself, he knew which scroll he wanted to read, which passage he wanted. He knew what to go to and what he wanted to teach the people. When he was being tempted in the desert, every temptation that the enemy threw at him, he answered with scripture. When he was being tested by the Pharisees and the high priests and people who were trying to twist his words and ask him questions to to put him in a corner, he would answer with scripture. Jesus was one who knew scripture. And if we want to follow him, one of the primary ways of being able to discern what is light and what is dark is to be students of his word, to recognize his character, to recognize his commandments, to know what this says about our world and about us as people and about the people around us, that we might be able to discern what is good and what is evil. We must be students of God's word. And Jesus, before he left, said, I don't leave you as orphans. I'm giving you my spirit, the counselor, the comforter. The Holy Spirit will be there and he will remind you of the things that I have taught you and he will convict the world of sin. Friends, the gift of the Holy Spirit who is living in us if we are followers of Christ is perhaps the most potent weapon that we have for recognizing good and evil, light and dark, because he's speaking that light into our hearts. And yet, John talks all about that we are sinful people who continue to sin and that God forgives. And yet there's just kind of this mess of sin and promise and redemption and sin and and we're broken, and yet we have the light of the Holy Spirit living in us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 paints a picture of this that I just think is beautiful. It says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. We have this light in us. We get to reflect the light of Jesus to the world, and yet we are in fragile clay pots. Because, friend, any light that's reflected from us, any good that comes out of us is flowing out of the good that God is doing in us, not out of our own power. So how do we walk in the light and not in spiritual darkness? We do that with humility, with honest self-awareness with total reliance on the righteousness of Jesus, following his way, recognizing the battle, being committed to his word, and leaning hard on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. We, uh, we look to these verses about sin, and can I just say, a lot of us don't like to talk about sin. 
But I believe it's because we have some misconceptions about sin. And when we have misconceptions about sin, if we misunderstand what the nature of sin is and what God is saying about sin, we misunderstand the heart of God. And if we misunderstand the heart of God about this area of sin, we misunderstand what he's offering us when he says he will forgive us from all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want to unpack three misconceptions that I see about the way that we think about sin. None of these are ones that I think we would think on a surface level or speak in a daily conversation, but I wonder if there are things that motivate and influence us under the waterline. Here's the first one. Line number one, God is a big killjoy. God is a big killjoy. God just needed to have this arbitrary list of things that were possible so that he could test us and then he could punish us. So basically God just took everything that was fun and he said, don't do it because that's sin. Right? And we would go, no, Jennifer, I know that that's not how it is, but I wonder if we function that way because when we stand on the precipice of temptation, what we're thinking is, but that just would make me happy. Oh, but this relationship would fulfill me if I just compromise here. Oh, but I could have financial stability if I would just do that. Oh, I could fit in with this group of girls if I would just gossip about her. <laughs> On any given level, it just looks like it's the, the path to happiness. Friends, John 4.16 says that God is love. And everything that he does is out of love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is kind, love is patient, love is good. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Do you know what that means? God does not have a list somewhere out on his throne that he's keeping track. And when you get just to the right number of things, he's going to hit the smite button because he's just ready to punish you. He's not an angry God waiting to punish you. We read in John that it says he's light and there's no darkness in him. We read about how he made a way for forgiveness for us. Friends, we have to understand that God is not a big killjoy just telling us not to do the things that will make us happy because he needs to test us on something and he wants something to punish us about. God calls sin, sin, because it's the things that will hurt us. Because he looks at his world and he knows what is going to capture us and hold us captive. He knows what's going to destroy our relationships and break our hearts. He knows what's going to get stuck in this spin cycle of despair and loneliness and despair and loneliness. And he says, dear ones, don't do it. God calls sin, sin because of how deeply he loves us. And he wants us to live the full and thriving life that he created for us before the foundation of the world. Sin is not a killjoy list of God's way of keeping the world in control. Sin is the naming of the warnings that God says, this will destroy your soul. It will leave you lonely. It will leave you disillusioned and it will separate you from me, the source of true love. He is gently, lovingly exposing things that are in our blind spots and our unknown spots so that we can live into the fullness of the real faith that he's called us to. God is not a big killjoy. He is a loving father seeking to protect us from broken hearts and broken lives. The second lie is this. Sin is just about our behavior. Sin is just about what we do. 
We see this when you hear, when you hear a, a, an evangelism message or maybe an invitation to confession and the leading question is, have you done anything wrong? And I would say the reality is our awareness of the things that we know we've done wrong is an introduction to the idea of sin, but it is not the end of the idea of sin because our sin has a tip of the iceberg, that's our behavior, and then it has layers below the waterline. Let me give an example. In my own life, uh, there have been times when my margins were thin that I have been spoken pretty harshly with my children. Um, and I've recognized when those words have come out or that tone has come out or I've seen the tears that, that, that I've sinned. And, and if I just apologize, ask forgiveness and move on, do you know what? I'm going to repeat that. But if I begin to look a little bit deeper, I recognize, do you know why I spoke harshly? I spoke harshly because I'm impatient, because their actions are not lining up with my expectations. And then if I look a little deeper, I realize, you know what? My expectations are based on the fact that I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I have an underlying lie in my life that says that if I do everything right, everything around me will fall into line and meet my expectations. So them not meeting my expectations has just tapped into and threatened my belief that if, in order for me to be good, I have to be able to control the world around me. That's beginning to hit into some tender spots. But then if you take that a little bit deeper, you realize that the lie I'm believing is actually the same lie that Adam and Eve were believing, that they can be like God. Because there's only one who is good. And there is only one who is perfect. And if I have an underlying perfectionism that says I can be like God, I am functioning from a deep root that is impacting me like a cancer in the unknown places of my life, hurting my relationships. And if all I do is behavior management to try to not talk quite as angrily or harshly to my kids, I will never reach the place where God can truly heal and transform. What if it's not our behavior that God is after? But it's the breeding ground, it's the heart, it's the motivations out of which that behavior grows. So let's take a look at this Johari window again in light of our conversation about sin. So this open area, those are the sins that I do, that you see, and we both know about. And when we're dealing with that kind of a sin, the, the path to freedom is for me to apologize, to confess, and to take restitution for whatever it is that I've done wrong. That's out in the open, okay? But you drop down into the hidden area, those are those things that I know I'm doing. They're my willful sin, but I'm trying really hard to not let anybody else see it. And, and because of my shame and because of my self-protectiveness, I don't want other people to discover that these are the things that I'm doing. Those are my hidden areas, if you pop up to the blind area, those can be even harder because those are those things where I don't recognize that what I'm doing is sin. It's not willful sin, but you can see that I am being impacted in ways that are not healthy and that are not God-honoring. These blind areas are where those underlying things that are going on in my life are coming up in other areas that I don't recognize and I'm treating people in certain ways or I'm choosing certain actions and I don't yet see that that is sin, but other people around me can see the brokenness. Again, that's part of why doing life in community is so valuable because even though it's hard, others can reflect back to us things that we can't see ourselves. And then that unknown square, that area where others don't see it, I don't see it, but like a cancer inside of me, it is impacting me. It is there in its darkness and it's making a change in my relationships and in my actions, but only God can expose that to me. It's a lie to think that sin is just about our behavior. 
I've got a list for you. It may not be your favorite list of all times. It's a list of root sins. <laughs> Those things that we find when we really allow God to peel back the layers and expose what is underneath our behavior, we find that there are several root sins that are common to man. Anger, deceit, gluttony, Greed. I had to look up the difference between those two, and I, and I like this definition. Gluttony is the absence of self-control. It's when we just carry on and carry on, but greed is the absence of generosity. It's when we collect and hoard, okay? Uh, fear, lust, pride, envy, sloth. We're not going to go deep into explaining all of these today, but I wonder what would happen if when you were faced with a behavior, perhaps a repetitive behavior in your life, if you would ask God the question, God, would you show me what's in my blind spot? Would you expose what's in the unknown area? Because there's something that is deeper, that is underlying, that is the breeding ground, that is motivating the behavior that I'm seeing, and I need transformation here in the deepest places so that I can see true change in my life. Lie number three is that confession is a downer. <laughs> confession is a downer. When a pastor says, okay, let's take some time of confession, it's like a deflated balloon. Pfft. Oh, sure, I'll take some time and ask God what I've done wrong. Thanks for the great time this morning. Yes, let's, let's, let's talk about where I'm bad. This is great. I have a story for you. About three weeks ago, I started to notice a bad smell in my cabinet in my closet where I keep some clothes. First day, ooh, something smells bad. I probably put away some dirty socks. Close it up. Second day, man, that still smells. I do not have time to deal with it right now. Third day, open it up. Oh my goodness, what is wrong? Let's get this thing taken care of. I start sorting through clothes. Uh, Jeff, my husband, notices and he says, he's in the closet. He goes, well, maybe it's over here on my side, which is completely possible. My loving husband with so many fabulous traits does not like to wash his exercise clothes because he doesn't want them to wear out. <laughs> so there is a pile on his side of the closet that often smells, but I knew that this one was emanating from my cabinet. So I'm digging things out, and do you know what I find? It's my running jacket. I'm like, I didn't think I smelled as bad as Jeff, but this is a bad smell. So I run it through the wash, and when it comes out of the wash, it still just kind of faintly smells. And I'm like, man, this is weird. Usually it's not that hard to get a smell out. So I toss it back in the laundry basket for the next time I do laundry, which is, you know, maybe a week later or so. I forget that the coat's in there. I run the laundry. I open the dryer, and it assails me. What died? I mean, this is a terrible smell. And I'm like, did something crawl into the pockets of this coat? And I literally die. Like I, and I reach into a pocket to find out if something, nothing's in that pocket. So I go for the other pocket and it is zipped shut. And in the moment that I realized it was zipped shut, it all came back to me in a flash of insight. And this thought, Jennifer, you are such an idiot. Because I had been walking the dog. Yes, I had. Yes, I did. It was in plastic, and the plastic held. But friends, I had poop in my pocket. And I ran it through the dryer at least two times. We think that confession is this downer, 
But friends, confession is getting the poop out of our pockets. There is something in our life, and it is called sin, and it is creating a stench that is bugging us and is bugging others. And I can't blame this stench on somebody else. They might have their own pile of smell, but I can't blame this on them. This poop is in my pocket, and I don't want to keep it in my pocket just so that I don't feel bad about the fact that I forgot I put it there. See, that's what we do with sin. I feel bad about having done it, so let's stuff it down deeper and not talk about it because confession is just hard. Friends, confession is hard, but confession is the only path to the freedom that God has offered us in Jesus Christ. Do you hear it? In John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If you will confess your sin, I am faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God gets rid of all the stench. There is nothing that you have done that God cannot make clean. But this is an if-then. In the scripture, if you see an if-then, you've got to know that we have a part and God has a part. If we confess, then he will make it clean. Friends, confession is not this big, bad, shame-filled, guilt-producing time. Confession is the only path to the freedom that God has given us and purchased for us in Christ Jesus. Confession is the biggest, most glorious, amazing tool that God has given us to walk in the freedom that he has purchased for us. Confession is no downer. It is getting the poop out of your pockets. Rob Reamer said it this way. He was here in, um, at Pentecost week and brought a lot of great teaching to the church and the staff. And this is in his book. He says, when we reject truth, we miss out on the freedom God affords. We cannot heal that which we will not confess. We are often reluctant to admit the ugly, broken, and sinful parts of ourself. But to the degree that we deny these realities, we live in bondage to them. To the degree that we deny the reality of our ugly, broken, and sinful parts, we are living in bondage to our ugly, broken, and sinful parts. God, who is light, shines his light on those ugly, broken parts and sinful parts not to shame us, not so that he can fulfill his list of how he's going to punish us, but so that he can set us free. The path to peace is not to hide our sin, it's not to be ashamed of our sin, but it's to humbly recognize and enter into the gospel's remedy for sin, which is through Jesus Christ, who paid the price for our sin and is waiting, willing to wipe the slate clean when we confess. So, as we ask God to show us what are in those unknown places, to expose those blind spots, what happens is we grow in the knowledge of him and in the knowledge of ourselves in light of who he is and who he says we are. And as we grow in that knowledge that he's giving us, something changes in our Johari window. The open area begins to grow. What is known to self begins to grow and the blind areas and the unknown areas get smaller and smaller because we are opening ourselves to the light and the life of Christ. And then as we do this the way that God called us to do, which is in community, did you know that scripture says, let us not give up meeting together? 
Because we're to do this Christian faith journey together, to be honest with each other, to share with each other, to be vulnerable, even to confess our sins to one another. And when we do that, the open area also grows because others know more about us and the hidden area is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And you see what's happening here is that the light is increasing and the darkness is decreasing in our unknown areas. And that is exactly what John says is going to happen. First John Chapter 2, verse 8, for the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. This is the light that you and I get to walk in. This is the solid foundation of real faith that fills us up and gives us something to pour out to others as we walk in the light. As the worship team comes, I want to invite us to a time of reflection We've looked at this model of blind areas and unknown areas, and I want to invite you for a time of quiet to just ask God, God, is there something you want to show me about yourself? Is there something you want to show me about me? Holy Spirit, is there a conviction you're bringing? Is there a sin I need to confess? God, is there something you want to show me about those unknown areas that you want to shine your light on something that I haven't seen before? In this quiet, I just invite you to invite God to show you what you need to see. And then when we begin to worship, we're going to be singing a song that invites us to the altar. Some of us might want to physically respond to this reality. Perhaps to kneel where you are, stand where you are. Open, I'm going to open these steps and you can come up and use those as an altar, as a place to bow before God. And remember this, we sometimes think of the altar as a shaming place because of our sin. But the reality is the altar is the place of God's open arms where we get to walk into the freedom of his amazing love. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.